This is The Guardian. Today, after the aborted coup, what will Vladimir Putin do with the Wagner Group in Africa? What we've seen right after the mutiny was a very intense media campaign against Prigozhin with the aim to discredit him. We've seen images of a raid inside Prigozhin's villa that was done by the Russian security services and this footage of the raid was shown on Russian state television, of course on purpose, to, to try to discredit him. The images showed this expensive interior decor, cash, gold bars, guns, drugs, and uh, funny enough photos of Prigozhin's various disguises, uh, which basically became memes uh, on Russian social media. Pyotr Sauer is The Guardian's Russian affairs reporter, and he has been following Prigozhin's movements. First, he was reported to have fled to Belarus. Then, earlier this week, came a surprising twist to his story. Beskov, Putin's spokesperson, said that Prigozhin, together with 35 of his senior commanders, came to the Kremlin just five days after the rebellion and had a meeting with Putin for three hours. We don't know exactly what, what happened during this meeting, uh, but the very fact that Putin met Prigozhin at the Kremlin shows that Prigozhin still has some leverage in Russia. We're seeing a lot of contradictions in Russia's reaction to Prigozhin. The morning of the rebellion on, on the Saturday, Putin's vowed to liquidate Prigozhin, to liquidate Wagner. You know, he was coming out with these very strong terms, very emotional terms. But five days later, he's meeting him in the Kremlin. So this is a stunning turnaround. For now, Putin seems to be keeping Prigozhin on side. His jet has been flying up and down Belarus and Russia moving between Moscow and St. Petersburg. So this is not a man who seems to be on the run, who seems to be afraid for his safety, which is, of course, very interesting, given Russia's long history of uh, you know, poisoning and imprisoning opposition leaders. And the Kremlin has a conundrum. What to do with the Wagner Group that Prokhorin built? The armed units, the business interests in Russia, and perhaps most importantly, with the increasingly lucrative empire abroad? You know, 
know he's been active in multiple African countries, uh, providing both security guarantees, but also busy in mining and uh, natural resources. You know, also working on Russia's soft power in those countries through, you know, his infamous troll factories have been spreading pro-Russian propaganda on Facebook and on Twitter. So I think for Russia, he's an extremely, he was an extremely useful asset, um, not just in the country, but also abroad. And they're still grippling on how to deal with sort of this fallout. From The Guardian, I'm Noshin Iqbal. Today in Focus, Putin versus Prigozhin. Is the Wagner Group too valuable to destroy? Jason Burke, you're The Guardian's Africa correspondent, and you've been reporting on the Wagner army close up on the continent for quite a few years now. Now, last month, Wagner troops turned mutinous and were marching on Moscow, and it seemed like the whole world was watching on, just enthralled. What were your initial thoughts? Well, I was immediately thinking about all these Wagner operatives in really, really remote places like the Central African Republic's border with Sudan or North Central Mali, which are really cut off, very hot usually. There's not a lot there. It's difficult, dangerous places to be. And thinking, what must they be thinking, looking back at what was going on in Russia? There must have been an extraordinary moment for them. And also for the people who employ them, who are, on the whole, some pretty unpleasant leaders of some very unpleasant regimes. When it became clear that Yevgeny Prigozhin, leader of the Wagner Group, that he wasn't going to follow through with his apparent coup and he would be removed from his role. What were you then hearing about what it meant for his mercenaries in Africa? Well, I started making calls all over the place and trying to find out what was happening on the ground, basically, to see whether there was any movement or any, any other kind of traffic being picked up, and communications or, or whatever. And there was absolutely nothing. We picked up a couple of redeployments in Libya, but otherwise it was really just business as usual. There was absolutely no indication that anything was going to change. I spoke to someone who was party to a conversation with um, Khalifa Haftar, the Libyan warlord, who was talking to his kind of Wagner point man, who was busy reassuring Haftar that there would be no change, that the machine would remain the same, the money men would remain the same, the contacts would remain the same, the phone numbers would remain the same, that everything would be carrying on as it had been. So Wagner, far from being dismantled, disbanded, it just lives on? Well, it's, it's quite misleading to talk about Wagner, actually, because, I mean, it's kind of a brand uh, rather than a company or a military unit. And... As such, it has a kind of zombie half-life of its own. It can just be either rebranded or its component elements can be rebranded, whether they're military, whether they're economic, whether they're political. So it's, it's much more complicated entity than people think. People have this idea that Wagner is just a bunch of guys with guns, they're mercenaries primarily. Actually, I think it's, it's, that's rather clever and I think that's what we're meant to think because the mercenaries are very high profile they get all the attention, they get all the focus and a lot of the international criticism, but that disguises the bulk of 
Wagner operations in Africa, which have been primarily devoted to resource extraction. Dozens and dozens of companies that are running really effective, often extractive operations that are bringing out gold, diamonds, all sorts of other stuff, lucrative commodities, but are also running local businesses. So in Central African Republic, people connected with Wagner are running a brewery, a vodka-producing plant, much more broad than simply supplying bodyguards, trainers and frontline combat troops. I mean, it's a, it's a really diverse conglomerate devoted to taking out really lucrative commodities from golden diamonds all the way down to wood. is the scale of Wagner's involvement in Africa? How many countries do they actually have a presence in? Wagner have been in probably a couple of dozen of the 50 plus countries on the continent. Also, they've made moves to get into Angola, into Democratic Republic of Congo, Madagascar, Cameroon, Uh, They're looking at the moment at Burkina Faso and Chad, and they've got a couple of people on the ground in each, um, but they're not really there in any substantive way. So if you're looking at where they have been in the last year or so in a really kind of significant way, you're looking at Mali, Libya, Central African Republic, and Sudan primarily. And these are important places on the continent which can act as really useful hubs for extending influence across Africa. And that's very much part of what the Kremlin want them to do. So if the message that all these governments were getting that actually it's business as usual, Jason, can you explain a bit more about what that business is? Can you tell me how do Wagner get embedded in a country and what is it that they then do once they're there? So in Central African Republic... The government there of Faustin Archange to Adera were having great difficulty with a coalition of rebels that were advancing on the capital. The country's president may be in talks about a peaceful way out of the conflict, but on the ground in the Central African Republic, the reality is bleak. And French troops and UN troops were not really fighting them off in the way that the Tuatara regime wanted them to, it looked like the regime might fall. Away from the main streets, the French peacekeepers and their African colleagues are virtually powerless. Now the president's official residence lies empty. Nobody knows if he'll return. And... Wagner just came in and basically said, we'll solve your problem. It's quite simple. We'll send a bunch of guys with guns. They'll kill the rebels. You won't have a problem. And obviously, Tuadera thought this was great. Brought them in. 27 years after the fall of the Soviet Union, the Russians are stepping back in the heart of Africa at a time when the West and notably France, the former colonial power, is retreating. They started by training his soldiers. They started by fighting the rebels in a really hands-off way and quite rapidly changed the military dynamic. Masked Russian fighters, some were in Ukraine, others in Syria or Chechnya. Now they're in the Central African Republic, training an army that has lost control of the country. 
the way it works is that once a ruler has decided that he wants some help fighting whichever rebel group it is, and the Wagner mercenaries are on the ground, then there are obvious questions of how they're going to be paid. And the, the obvious way for most of these governments to do that is they say, OK, we'll pay you a monthly fee. And it's so we don't really know exactly, but the figures that we've heard from, say, Mali are about 10 million a month. Mozambique, it was meant to be something similar. But the problem is that very few of these governments have that kind of cash, particularly not in dollars, sitting around. And Wagner know they're unlikely to get that. So what they get instead is, for example, in Central African Republic, they get Undesima, which is a massive open-cast gold mine. And the government in the CAR said, basically, we're going to give it to Wagner, which is exactly what they did. And Wagner have been trying to exploit it ever since, not getting a huge amount out of it. But very quickly, they kind of embedded themselves in the fabric of Central African Republic's politics and economy and military. And then from that platform, they were able to launch operations across a much broader swath of Central Africa out into Sudan, where they were already busy with gold and so forth, up into Mali, all sorts of places that they could jump off from and and continue doing this very opportunistic strategy of pushing for places where there was a perceived demand, they could supply the demand, and then once they were in, in through the door with the mercenaries, well, then they could look for the resources. And those resources are great. I mean, you can, for for, for operatives like that who are working in a kind of semi-legal world, you're talking about material that is highly valuable, diamonds or gold, for example, that you can move really easily. They've got access to airstrips. They've got access to transport, often supplied by the Russian state. They've got a government in their pocket, so no one's going to kind of inspect the planes that are flying out. Some of it is going straight into Russia. So they have a whole series of different ways of turning what appears to be a military and political intervention into one that's leads to significant commercial gain. It's actually a really sophisticated operation that you describe, because for most people, you might think that Wagner operates as this brute force, like, you know, go into a country, help prop up a government by quelling the insurgencies or the rebels. But actually, you've described a highly intelligent, highly efficient operation, whereby there's political influence, there's social influence, And then, of course, as you've said, the payment is access to natural resources. Why do you think it is they've been so effective at this? I think there are two main reasons why they've been effective. One is, we shouldn't forget it, they are acting as an arm of the Kremlin. So they have a major state behind them. Their people are almost all ex-Russian military, Russian security services. They have political top cover, or at least had, from Putin, people in his regime... You know, that is a really major advantage. For many local regimes, they are effectively representing the Russian state. But the, the other reason that they've been really effective is that they're operating in an environment that is really permissive. So we're at a moment uh, across Africa where there's a massive deficit of 
governmental authority. States are incredibly weak. States are wrestling with a whole series of really profound challenges. Climate change induced some of them. Others just straight responses to really big demographic shifts, economic shifts, the effective withdrawal of the US from much of the continent, particularly through the years of the Trump administration. There's a perfect storm of different issues that just would make even competent, honest, efficient, capable governments falter. And it, it means that there's this kind of anarchic environment which allows actors like Wagner or indeed the Russian state to thrive. about disinformation? Because we know that Prigozhin played a role in interfering with the US election in 2016. He's admitted to that. And he's also helped fund troll farms in Russia. Is part of Wagner's mission to interfere in the local politics of the countries that they're embedding themselves in? Yeah, absolutely. So so we, we haven't spoken about that, that element too, which is Again, you know, it, it's all part of Prigozhin's service, if you like, or it was the service, that you could say was part of Wagner. I mean, it was connected to his web of companies and personnel. The information operations were really important in, say, Mali, where they built up a powerful wave of discontent against the French and against the UN in a way that made it much more politically and popularly easy for the regime there to bring in Wagner when they did in December 2021. Um, So one of the things that makes Wagner effective is that it is really multifaceted. It looks at information as people working on information influence operations. It has a big commercial component. It has a military component. It has a pure political component. And you put that all together with some backing from the Russian state and it's really effective. Jason, what does it mean for the people of these countries living there where Wagner has a foothold? There are two real problems for local communities when Wagner are around. One is really direct and that is that violence goes up. I mean, there is no effort to restrain violence. In fact, the opposite, violence is, and terror is seen as a primary tactic of warfare, counterinsurgency, and it is deployed massively and indiscriminately. But the other thing that obviously the presence of Wagner does is reinforce very unpleasant and really rapacious, often corrupt, incompetent local regimes. And that, in a much broader sense, is obviously really bad news for local communities. So in absolutely every way, it's just really bad news for the people on the ground who, you know, they already have enough to try and cope with. And this really, really does not help. So I can see how much of a financial benefit these operations were to Prigozhin and to Wagner. But how much benefit was Russia getting from these arrangements? As for the real and obvious evident benefits to Russia, or the Kremlin anyway, what can we point to? Well, it would be nice to be able to point to 
big cash flows, uh, but we can't. We haven't got the evidence and we don't know where the money goes. I mean, there's obviously quite a lot goes back to Russia, but quite whom it goes to in Russia and how it's distributed, I think it's just almost impossible to tell. What you can say is there's a really obvious political benefit that in geostrategic terms massively outweighs any financial advantage for the Kremlin. You know, 10 years ago, Russia had almost no presence in Africa. When I first arrived in Africa, started covering it in 2016, almost no one was really talking about Russia on the continent. Seven years later, and they're a significant actor and with really very little resource commitment. And that's what's impressive in its way, depressingly so. Can you explain a little bit more about why? Why is it important for the Kremlin to have political influence in Africa? There are all sorts of reasons for them to want to have political influence in Africa. I mean, one is that it can throw spokes in the wheels of the West. Another is that it secures resources that they may need, useful resources, particularly at the moment. If they're going to need to do some sanctions busting, they can do it with a fistful of diamonds they've taken out of Central African Republic or somewhere quite easily. It gets them local proxies, local allies who will act in their interests on the ground and, as importantly, act in their interests in international fora, particularly at the UN, they can reinforce a really powerful and effective narrative uh, in the global south, which frames the US and the West as neo-imperialist and the Russians as defenders of the exploited and impoverished masses of the developing world. And all of that is just really useful. And at such limited cost that it's a kind of win-win, until recently anyway. We start with the breaking news that the head of the Wagner mercenary group has called off an armed uprising in Russia. He says that it has come in response to an intervention by the Belarus president, Lukashenko. Mystery over the whereabouts of Wagner Group mercenary boss Evgeny Prigozhin. Belarus's leader, Alexander Lukashenko, says Prigozhin is in Russia and not Belarus, as he previously claimed. Clearly, the fate of Wagner and its leader is now in question. Jason, mercenaries, by their definition, are primarily loyal to money. And as much as be made of Prigozhin's reputation and his leadership... How important really was he as their leader to their success in Africa? Does it matter if it's him at the top or not? Well, this is the really important question. and We don't quite know the answer yet. Because, I mean, Prigozhin had sort of had the vision, we think, and certainly had the initiative or had the drive to go out and do a lot of this, to sort of set this up. But there's this sort of top tier of Wagner people, a pretty unpleasant bunch and have been fiercely loyal to Prigozhin. And we just simply don't know now which way they're going to jump. Will they accept a new relationship with the Russian state? Will they resign and sort of seek other opportunities? Will they 
try and rebel, which seems extremely unlikely. It is certainly the case that they're doing it for money. I mean, they're mercenaries. But they're also doing it, as they see it, for the greater good of Mother Russia. It's certainly the case with many of the leaders. They're doing it because they're highly trained and have skills that they know that they can market, and this is a way of doing it. And some of them will certainly be doing it out of personal loyalty to Prigozhin. My sense is that latter element is probably not as strong as some might think, and that bringing a lot of these people over into or or kind of binding them into some new setup that is more closely integrated with the Russian state would not be too hard. But I think what will be difficult will be making sure that Wagner can still operate with the same agility and the same efficacy and the same complete disregard for any kind of international norm. If it is very clearly now part of the Kremlin's much broader machine. Well, that's the thing, because up until very, very recently, the Kremlin's official position on the Wagner Group is that It has always been a separate private entity that wasn't controlled or funded by Moscow. And then with this distance, Wagner was able to destabilise African countries, carry out military operations and accumulate huge wealth that you've been telling us about that Russia was then able to deny that it was involved with. But now that deniability doesn't seem to matter to Putin. Why is that? I think it probably does matter to Putin. It's just he hasn't got much choice. I mean, the problem with Wagner was it was all working fine until Ukraine transformed Wagner into something that it hadn't been previously, which was instead of being this kind of low-level outfit with mercenary units spread out across the Middle East and Africa, it suddenly had tens of thousands of men with heavy weapons and tanks in Europe. So they've got to manage that. And the obvious way they're going to try and do it, I think, just rebrand it or change the people at the top, make it more disciplined, make sure it's no threat, but make sure they would hope that it can still do what it was doing. Um, And and that, I think, is going to be the problem because it's not just that it was deniable. It was that arm's length allowed it a freedom of movement and allowed it to be really agile and allowed Wagner to do all sorts of things quickly and without necessarily referring back to the Kremlin, or even if they did, it would probably be a fait accompli by the time that they got told not to do it. I mean, it would ch- it will change the very nature of the organisation in a way that may make it impossible for it to carry on doing what it was doing in the same successful way. Do we know about how Russia plans to keep the African arm of the Wagner operation running without Prigozhin and... Why is it important to them that they do? What we do know is that they won't want to shut it down. They won't want to lose everything they've built up. I mean, it's really useful. It's useful politically. It's useful economically. It's useful in terms of influence operations. It's still expanding or at least got the potential to expand. And they won't want to throw all that away. It costs very little for the amount of resources that are committed It's really effective. And I can see no reason why they would want to just dismantle it or just let it wither. And there's a lot of useful operational capability there and they're going to want to try and keep that and use it in the future. 
Coming up. Beyond Africa, what does the future hold for Prigozhin and for the Wagner Group? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today in Focus is supported by... Better help. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash todayinfocus. Piotr, you told us earlier how Yevgeny Prigozhin is moving around like a free man in his private jet, flying from St. Petersburg to Moscow and so on. But does anyone know what's next for him? Um, no, and I don't think he knows it himself, uh, potentially. Uh, you know, he still has this army uh, of Wagner troops that hasn't been disbanded yet. And they're currently staged in eastern Ukraine uh, at, at their bases, so near their front line. And there remains a total mystery what, what is going to happen with Prigozhin, what's going to happen with these troops. There's obviously talk of them moving to Belarus altogether. So I think uh, many questions are left open. Piotr, finally... Have the last few weeks fundamentally changed something for Putin? Yes, I mean, uh, undeniably, this was the biggest crisis in Putin's 23 years in charge. Uh, this is the first time there was an armed rebellion with you know, mercenaries 200 kilometers outside of the Russian capital. Uh, you know, there was a real sense of panic in the city. And even for now, it seems that um, you know, the crisis is averted. Uh, Putin has lost um, a sense of... Um, strength that I think it will be very hard for him to regain, both among the regular people who for the first time saw that his challenge, that his power can really be challenged, but most importantly amongst the elites that, you know, saw this mercenary head charging on their city 
uh, and feeling pretty vulnerable. And many will be asking themselves, can Putin, can this man still guarantee their safety and, and more, more important for them, their assets? So I think what happened fundamentally changed the way the Russian regime is viewed inside and outside the country. Piotr, thank you so much. Thank you. That was Piotr Sauer, our Russian affairs reporter, and Jason Burke, The Guardian's Africa correspondent. My thanks to both of them. To read more on this story, search for Jason's piece. It is like a virus that spreads. Business as usual for Wagner Group's extensive Africa network at theguardian.com. And finally, The Guardian Weekly is running a limited subscription offer that you might just want to catch. It's our weekly global news magazine where you'll find in-depth articles handpicked from The Guardian's award-winning journalism. Sign up today and get 12 issues for just £12. Subscribe at theguardian.com forward slash Focus Weekly. I'm Noshin Iqbal, and this episode was produced by Alex Atak. Sound design is by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producer was Phil Maynard. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, I'm Kara Berry, host of Everyone's Business But Mine, and I am an all-inclusive addict. Enter Club Med, the best all-inclusive for you and your family. With resorts worldwide from their family flagship resort, Club Med Punta Cana, to their only mountain resort in Canada, Club Med Quebec, they have everything you need to relax. With their 20-plus sports activities, wellness programs, you can dine on delicious cuisine and make memories with your family. So book your next getaway with Club Med. Visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.